What does a letter from the future look like? In the sci-fi movie Interstellar, time bends to allow a frantic warning from many years away to be experienced in an oblivious present. A tumble of books from a shelf in a coded pattern yet to make sense. The falling books are seen, but the message is not yet understood. It takes some time for messages from the future to become clear. When two female students at the University of Melbourne's Ormond College went to the police in 1992 to lay indecent assault charges against the college's then-master Dr Alan Gregory, their actions seemed to some utterly bewildering. Why would they go to the cops? An alleged touch on the breast? A leering remark? A silly old duffer at a college function doing the stuff that men on the source often did? If any of this indeed happened, and many refused to believe that it did, wasn't this the sort of thing that educated young women should be able to handle? Books fell from the shelves. Down tumbled Helen Garner's The First Stone. Bewildered, angry and despairing about how women at the height of their erotic and social powers could be rendered helpless by a foolish fumble from the kind of men she'd been fending off for years. Garner's bewilderment was tinged with sorrow. Is this what her feminism had become? she asked. Destructive, priggish, pitiless? Her best-selling book sparked a firestorm of debate that can now be clearly seen as one of the first great battles of Australia's culture wars. Sides were chosen largely, but not always, along ideological lines. For the young women, if you still believed in the feminist cause, against them, if you didn't. If that sounds simplistic now, it was even more tribal then. More distressing was the complex generational divide opened up by her book, and this was the most painful one of all, for everyone. This divide didn't mean that all younger and all older women were lined up against each other. There were some very high-profile exceptions to this on both sides. The substance of the debate came to be a struggle over exactly what freedom meant for a woman who wants to claim her place in the world. For those who could understand what the Ormond College women had done, that freedom was the hard-won right to have their claims tested in open court, for others, freedom should surely mean the capacity to tell a bloke to piss off and never let it get you down. Garner and her many supporters said they did not understand why a woman could not rely on her innate power, her implied sexual strength, to bat away a hand and to refuse to let unwanted attention overwhelm her. And that was a criticism that was hard to take. I can't overstate how much we admired Garner and her generation. We knew they took the blows for us. We knew that for some women, white, middle-class, educated women like us, it was so much easier now than it had been for them to call out much of the garden-variety sexism and discrimination that was their 60s lot. Her generation of brilliant thinkers and activists dominated the conversation back then. You can't have an encounter with someone as ferocious as, say, Eva Cox, the founder of the women's economic think tank, and not hope that she approved of you. But Garner's cry in the last line of The First Stone asking why they were all so afraid of life, left me gasping. I found myself in endless conversations about it with women of my age, 
and it felt something like sisters coming together to comfort each other after being chewed out by a disappointed mother. The fault line we all stumbled on was whether this was a failure of self-reliance by our generation or a moment of appeasement by the one above. And the disappointment between generations was profoundly mutual. This generational split was no fiction. I felt the grain of 60s activism in Ghana's question of why the young women went to the cops. I wondered if the word in earlier drafts might have been pigs. Right there was a central difference between the generations. The women I knew were working with police to reform law and change policing behaviour, trying, not always successfully, to build relationships and they pragmatically saw a better informed police force as central to achieving change for women. But those older than us had a profound mistrust of the law, understandably through bitter experience. The cops. The very last people you'd go to. After the first stone, articles, pamphlets, denunciations, speeches and critiques showered down, and none were without a fervent seizing of ground. The entire legal apparatus of sexual harassment laws seemed up for grabs, but institutional inertia also started to be exposed. Routine abuses of power in the workplace were discussed anew, this time with a strengthening backlash against what some saw as trivial complaints. The battle was exhausting. Ghana described it as a year of horror. It was now 1995, and I was winded by disappointment. It seemed that just when women should feel confident and able to use sexual harassment laws created for them by a previous generation of feminists, we were being denounced for daring to take matters further than a discreet in-house complaint. Back then, evidence showed that many workplaces simply had no idea of how to deal with sexual harassment matters. Women were being told that it was your word against his, and therefore there was no evidence to support a complaint. Women were not being believed, and worse, were being encouraged, even paid, to leave rather than take their legitimate grievances further. The debate had devolved into a slanging match, a confusion of sex with sexism, of mutual affection with uninvited attention. I was a reporter at The Age newspaper. I had my dream job writing long-form features for one of this country's greatest newspapers. My editors were serious, accomplished journalists, and they were almost all men. The culture was blokey, but progressive. Yes, women were assumed to be every bit as good as the men around them, but we also knew we had to navigate a system that still excused the excesses of some men with unfussed indulgence. As a journalist, a storyteller, I've always been a bit like the man who found a button he liked on the footpath and had a suit made around it. My stories always start with one idea, a proposition, a character, hopefully one central truth, and proceed from there. Before I wrote anything else, I wrote this paragraph. It is paranoid nonsense to suggest that relations between men and women are now bound and gagged by priggish feminism or overbearing laws. We all deal with desire, rejection and the occasional abuse of power every day and mostly with success. Mostly with success. 
How many times had I walked away from an offensive remark, a leering look, a foul suggestion? I can't remember. How many cases did I know of women who decided they'd had enough and marched into HR to get the crap to stop? I didn't know of one. Yes, you bet we copped it and moved on. All the time. In the case of the Ormond College women, their complaints were first made privately and discreetly. They repeatedly sought internal, confidential redress inside the college process. And they were let down in every instance. Indeed, the series of decisions made by the college, the women found out the master had been exonerated by reading a notice pinned to the dining room bulletin board, is a case study of classic institutional failure. So, why were so many people we admired getting into us when one of us finally did complain? Before I started in journalism, my initial post-university job was the first thing I could find that had anything to do with ideas and writing. Broke and alarmed by Australia's descent into recession, I grabbed a job in the publicity department of a small Melbourne-based publishing house, Greenhouse Publications. A strange list of craft, gardening, alternative therapy and fiction. I was terrible at it. I hated the nagging and wheedling required to get our authors into the media and I realised very early on that I was diffident in the role. Once, I even stood an author up at her own event because I'd simply forgotten about it. It's a wonder I wasn't sacked. But I made a great friend there, fiction editor Belinda Byrne, and in the aftermath of the Ormond College Wars, whenever we caught up, I bored her senseless with rants and speeches about how an entire generation of women and a hard-won set of discrimination laws had been misrepresented by the furore. In the end, she made the universal declaration of the fed-up friend. Well, if you care so much about it, why don't you write something? I need to pause here to adequately describe the terror of deciding to take on, in print, an argument made by one of Australia's most beloved authors. This was the author of Monkey Grip and The Last Days of Chenu. I loved Garner's work, and like any young woman living in an inner-city Melbourne life my experiences intersected with hers. At university, one of my friends lived in the loft that, she was sure, was Jarvo's heroin hangout. I knew that if I wrote this book, I would make enemies and lose friends. Indeed, one of my closest friends was one of Helen Garner's oldest. I was planning to head to this friend's country property to sit quietly and write. The many tense discussions between us about the subject feature in the book. I remember the fear coming on me like a Bell's Beach dumper. But to my surprise, it pulled away just as quickly. This really mattered to me, and so I felt I had no choice. How else were generations of Australian women going to feel they could use laws created for them without fear of public attack unless we said something in support of them? So I wrote a book, another tumbling book in the pattern. I wrote Generation F, Sex, Power and the Young Feminist, because the next generation feminists I knew at that time were doing the most extraordinary work in fields that were important then, but seem even more crucial now. They were the early agitators in trying to get society to recognise systemic discrimination and harassment. 
They were the workplace advocates trying to free women from the pink ghetto of dead-end part-time work into which their so-called family-friendly workplace had corralled them. And they were the brilliant and brave social leaders holding up a mirror to an epidemic of domestic and family violence at which we were nowhere near willing to look. Time makes sense of time. The two young women who launched their legal action against their college master unwittingly wrote us a letter from the future in a code that was not yet clear to us. But in the passing decades since this flashpoint of dismay between generations of feminists, women and men, a diamond-hard truth has remained in place. That largely, we all get on. We manage the conflicts and fumbles and transgressions with good grace or eye rolls or a pointed word and move on. We forget more harassment than we remember. But sometimes... Not all the time, but sometimes, because sexism is real and misogyny is alive, a woman needs the help of the law to navigate her workplace, even her home life. And even then, when you hear some of the stories today of those who have turned their face to the scrutiny of the law, you wonder why they bothered. The Ormond College matter was a moment of j'accuse, that has made more and more sense as the years have gone on. As other high-profile cases of sexual harassment came to prominence, as corporations large and small slowly awoke to the legal, economic and social costs of harassment in their workplace, and as our toxic legacy of sexual violence became a poison we could no longer ignore. And as women and men around the world have started to speak up and say, yes, me too, I've been harassed and paid the price. The hopeless attempts of these college women at getting due process from a recalcitrant Melbourne institution seem dismayingly familiar. For me, these Ormond College women were and are the first voices of the revolution that is Me Too in Australia. In a way, the book that follows is a letter in a bottle from a time that will be surprisingly familiar even while some of the characters have changed or gone to another place. There are references to last year and hopes for the next, both of which have long passed now. When it was published and the post-First Stone debate was in full rage, my intention was to get to a deeper understanding about what the feminist mission looked like in the hands of a much maligned younger generation. I'm thrilled to say that these women fulfilled their promise. Among those in the book, some have founded their own companies, one dedicated to diversity. They've written lasting law reform. One has almost single-handedly kept the issue of family violence in the public eye. A couple of them are now judges. One is a Deputy High Commissioner at the UN. One has been appointed to the Supreme Court of Victoria. Some of them are not that much younger than me, but I feel something akin to a big sister's pride in what they've gone on to do. Publication was a bit of a big deal. Australia's feminist godmother Anne Summers was then editor of Fairfax's Good Weekend magazine, and she put me and my old friend from university days, Cathy Bale, on the cover. In a now faintly embarrassing sepia-toned double portrait, part Gen X rock chick, part Ingmar Bergman's persona. 
Cathy had just published a book entitled DYI Feminism. The headline was, Writing About Their Generation, Girls of the Femgen Strike Back. And the debate was off and running again. Was feminism dead or alive and well in the hands of a new generation? Were these women worthy of their valuable inheritance from women like Jermaine Greer, Eva Cox and Anne Summers herself? So many women, young and old, wrote to me, sharing their moments of harassment and discrimination. And while they spoke about their faith and trust in a well-meaning system, it was clear that the clumsy use of laws and regulations had bruised more than just them. Time reveals, however, that this book is alarmingly white and pretty middle class. I remember a reviewer from the Green Left Weekly scolding me because I didn't identify the roots of women's oppression in the interests of the capitalist ruling class, so there's that too. The field of feminist activism now, much more than then, is defined by difference and intersectionality, and I'm happy to acknowledge that but I regret not seeking out the socially, sexually and racially diverse voices that were nonetheless raised back then for inclusion in my argument. It's a shock to realise that this all happened before the advent of social media. The stories and experiences and confessions and hatred I received after publication were by mail or email and the broadsheet pages of the major newspapers were really the only places where the arguments raged, which seems almost quaint today. The commentariat is still there, of course, some on those same pages still, but now not so many read them. Their power, if they have any, resides on ever-changing social media platforms. Some of the names in this book will be unfamiliar, Amusingly, some will be dismayingly familiar. So just substitute your favourite conservative or progressive in their place. In this book, there is the beginning of a game of blowhard bingo you could play too. So in this era of backlash and accountability, it seemed time to revisit some of the issues I looked at in a book born of a moment that seems not to have ended. Indeed, a disappointing amount has stayed the same. The women in the Ormond matter wanted three things, an acknowledgement of the harassment, an apology for it, and a promise that it would not happen again. And that's all. It's a three-part plea that has remained stunningly consistent in the majority of sexual harassment cases that go well and that go badly. Disappointingly, those working in the field say it remains elusive. Almost 25 years after the Ormond College case and the furore around the first stone, it's quite incredible to realise how little has changed. Women and men who make complaints about harassment are still far too easily tagged as troublemakers, and they know it. It's why, contrary to the spin, the vast majority of those harassed say nothing. Many workplaces still take what they see as the easiest and cheapest route through the thorny path of accusation and denial, and that's just to pay someone out. Sometimes the problem is that the system itself obstructs a peaceful path to reconciliation, being overly legalistic, framed by liability. Other times it's because, as one veteran says, we are fallible and we are flawed, we panic and we lie. There's little we'll ever be able to do about that universal frailty, 
So why isn't a system built to take account of that? Perhaps a legal system can't ever be, but maybe we can be better? The true lesson from 1992 is still one of bravery. The need for candour, not only from those who dare to step up to power, but also from those who may have caused the offence, and most crucially, from the workplace or institution being confronted by the claim. My book begins with what I realise now was one of my many Me Too moments. And it may seem now somewhat quaint, but it is the resolution of this moment that still fills me with immense pride, for me and for the man. The story represents the qualities that mean the most to me in people. Candour, honesty, owning your mistakes and apologising for them. Back then, I wrote... The rules governing how we thread our way through the world and around each other are as simple and as demanding as they have ever been. The addition of laws against sexual harassment, discrimination and abuse makes this no more complicated.